Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming. And welcome to the Cato Institute for our event this afternoon on Unlearning Liberty. I'm excited to do this event. Uh, I graduated not too long ago from uh, university. Uh, I went to Boulder for undergrad, but my first year was at Missouri, and this was in 1998. And uh, I went to school ready for a fight. That was, a, that was the interesting thing. I had a written a libertarian column for my high school newspaper, and uh, I had read Dinesh D'Souza's Illiberal Education, and I had read Jonathan Routh's Kindly Inquisitors, and then a couple, I think a year after I was in school, The Shadow University came out, which is written by the co-founders of uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, Alan Charles Kors and Harvey Silverglate. So I was prepared to fight, and I had written my last column in my high school newspaper, because it's called Prepare for Your Indoctrination. So I had, I had everything on ready, and I didn't see as much. I think at that point it had kind of ebbed a little bit because of the backlash created by books like A Liberal Education. And I only had one small event in my education when I was debating a fellow student in my political science class. She was an African-American student, and it was, we were discussing poverty in America, and I said, well, you might want to make a distinction between the working and the non-working poor. I get an email two days later from the professor. He's like, well, I need to talk to you, and she wants to talk to us together. So he was mediating because she had thought I made a racially disparaging remark. Um, this was enough, of course, uh, because of the regime we live in now, all you need to be is offended. And that's good enough, right? So she, was, she had thought it was a racially disparaging remark, so I gave a bunch of, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way, mea culpa. And then she leaves, and the professor, who was a really good guy, he said, you know, I, thought, I think this whole thing is ridiculous, but I kind of got to do this. Um, and uh, then he told me, uh, just, you know, maybe don't talk as much for like two weeks, which, you know, is good, because I talk a lot. So, so, <laughs> so that was my one experience. And I went to Boulder and, uh, and, you know, University of Boulder, Berkeley of the Mountains, People's Republic of Boulder. I didn't experience that much, but it's come back. And that's what's so important about Greg Lukianoff's new book, is that uh, uh, he illustrates that the issue hasn't gone away. And, and people are noticing, this is my personal favorite one from the Wall Street Journal about three weeks ago. I see a definite likeness here, to say the least. Uh, people are noticing <laughs> that, uh, that it's coming back. So, um, so it's an excellent book, and I highly commend it, and I'm excited to run this event. Uh, Greg's going to talk first, and then uh, I'm going to leave this. Great to talk first, and then we'll have some comment from uh, some students who I'll introduce uh, second. But we're going to do Greg first. Greg Lukianoff is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. He has been with FIRE since 2001, when he was hired to be the organization's first director of legal and public advocacy. He is a member of the State Bar of California and the Bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. He has published articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, many, many other publications. He is a blogger for the Huffington Post. He is a frequent guest on local and national syndicated radio programs. He has testified before the US Senate about free speech issues. And in 2008, he became the first ever recipient of the Playboy Foundation Freedom of Expression Award. That's great. <laughs> and in 2010, he received Ford Hall Forum's Lewis P. and Evelyn Smith First Amendment Award on behalf of FIRE. Uh, he is a graduate of American University and Stanford University Law School. Before joining FIRE, he practiced law in Northern California and interned at the ACLU, which I realized is not uncommon for FIRE employees to be ex-ACLU people. In addition to this, he is the co-author of FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. Please welcome Greg Lukianoff. 
thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I, I, uh, I used to live in DC, so it's always nice to be home. Um, and uh, so uh, preliminarily, I'd like to talk about why I, I wrote the book on, on learning liberty. Um, my, my first, uh, my, my background comes from First Amendment law. Um, I was one of the peculiar law students who actually went to law school specifically to do First Amendment law. Um, I specialized in it. I, uh, special, uh, I had a particular interest in the history of free speech, in both in Europe and in the U.S. And despite that, and despite knowing uh, you know, great historical abuses, I was utterly unprepared for the kind of abuses I would see on college campuses. It was much, much worse than I um, ever imagined. And you know, I've been doing this now for 11 years, um, which is almost unbelievable to me. But the and the interesting thing is, at one point, free speech on campus was considered um, a, sort of an, a, a transpartisan issue. Uh, it was an, an issue that certainly in the early 90s, with the rise of speech codes on campus, uh, you couldn't really tell an article in a conservative newspaper from one in a liberal one. The, the opposition to speech codes um, was obvious and across the board. Uh, but now, even though things are far worse than they were in the, in the 90s, um, the, this is sort of faded in the background, um, as if it's sort of no big deal. So I wrote Unlearning Liberty um, as a uh, way to make the point that freedom of speech and abuses of, of, of rights on campus matters to you even if you haven't set foot on a college campus in decades. Um, I believe this is harming our entire society. It, it some, at some level pains me that, that the harm of, of, of censorship on campus wouldn't just be self-evident. But I think when you start looking, you can see the harms of the, of the abuses on campus um, all throughout our society. So I wanted to start um, with, a, with a graph. Let me see. The clicker's here. The clicker's here? Okay. I tried to the screen. Okay. This is a study by the American Association of Colleges and Universities that came out in 2010. It involves 24,000 students were surveyed and 9,000 uh, campus administrators um, or campus uh, employees that included a subsection of, of faculty. Um, of these, they were asked the question, and which I believe was set up, um, uh, uh, was asked in a way that should have gotten an, an answer that would have essentially been a whitewash, simply, do you believe it's safe to hold unpopular positions on campus? Pretty milquetoast question. Um, if you really wanted a, uh, uh, you know, a serious answer, is it safe to express? Do you think do you have any worry at all about talking about controversial things? Anything. But this is just saying merely, is it safe to hold unpopular positions? Um, I, I think even people with really uh, um, uh, radical views would have said, well, sure, it's safe to hold it. It's just uh, it's just a question of whether or not I talk about it. But even with this incredibly weak question. Only um, around 35% of college students strongly agreed with the statement um, that it's safe to hold unpopular positions on campus. Um, if you don't, if you if you sort of, kind of, maybe think it's safe to hold unpopular positions on campus, that means you don't. Um, and if you tease out the numbers a little bit more, it gets even more interesting. Uh, freshmen or, or first years, as they're now called. Um, are comparatively optimistic at 40% of them answering um, uh, that it's safe to hold unpopular positions on campus. And as you note, every year after that, the numbers go down. And by their senior year, there's only 30% 30, only 30 of students are saying that it's safe to hold unpopular positions on campus. Now let's get to the campus professionals, including academic administrators um, and faculty. They're around 18.8% for that. And amazingly, uh, most dismally of all, 16.7% um, 
of college faculty agree that it's, quote, safe to hold unpopular positions on campus. 16.7%. Uh, it, and these are the people who um, arguably know campus is the best. Um, so I, I wrote uh, the book again to, to look into why, how I think this uh, affects the larger world and, and what, what comes out of this. And I've read a, and, and I've read a lot of, of uh, sociological books and studies and articles about the so-called uh, silent classroom. Um, it's pretty much you know acknowledged phenomena that for some reason that that um, academics scratch their head over, students are unwilling to talk in class like previous generations had. Um, that they're let they're more reticent than previous generations over the last 15, 20 years. And it's amazing to me to read this stuff because they consider all sorts of, um, in some cases, good theories, in some cases, meaningful theories, but in other cases, uh, really speculative ones. I remember reading one by Mich uh, Michio Kakatani talking about how it was uh, Crossfire and, uh, was to blame and the Mal Monica Lewinsky scandal was to blame. And never approaching the idea that maybe students are reticent about talking in class or getting into debates because they know they can actually get in trouble. Which is why I start uh, the book talking about K through 12 um, and about how the bad signals students are getting for what it means to debate and discuss in K, th in K through 12. Um, and uh, uh, you can look at the Student Press Law Center, for examples of how easy it is to get in trouble on the modern, uh, the modern high school for being, God forbid, a student journalist, for example. So the book actually walks uh, you th uh, a, a sort of fictional student through every opening chapter from K, uh, from high school through the end of their first semester to tell them all the bad, uh, to, to explain how many bad signals you get for what it means to really engage in debate and discussion in a meaningful, meaningful way. But, and it's important to, well, when I talk about censorship on campus, it's important to explain what kind of cases I'm talking about here. I know, it's a terrifying collage. <laughs> Um, this, uh, uh, this involves a, this is a collage produced by a student named Hayden Barnes. Um, he is a, a decorated EMT, a committed environmentalist. He studies the same kind of Buddhism I study. Um, he's a believer in non-aggression. <coughs> um, he was an opponent of the university's uh, decision to start a parking garage. He thought there were less expensive and more um, environmentally friendly answers to the parking problem on campus, uh, to the traffic problem on campus. Um, and he wrote an op-ed about it, and he wrote some of the Board of Regents. He was then called into President Ronald Zachary, that's him, um, office, uh, and dressed down for his opposition to the parking garage. Apparently, environmentalists had uh, stopped President Zachary from getting this passion project done um, a couple years before, and Zachary was not gonna let this happen again. Um, so after an hour and a half of dressing Hayden Barnes down, um, uh, and Hayden, you know, being a nice guy felt weirdly apologetic about it. Um, he realized, you know, that this was probably not what a university president should be spending his time doing, and he, and in, and he made this, this is actually a re, re, uh, very faithful recreation of it because the original one was just really beat up. Um, he made this collage, which he put on Facebook. No blood for oil, um, uh, crushed earth, all of this, you know, um, pretty classic stuff. Uh, and the park, uh, and, a, uh, and a, a parking garage and smog, uh, asthma inhaler. And he called it the Save Zachariah Memorial Parking Garage. Um, Save being the environmentalist group on campus that he believed had fallen down on the job. Um, and uh, Zachariah, of course, being the name of the 
president, Memorial being a joke on the fact that the uh, university president had asserted that this was part of his legacy. Um, <laughs> Hayden Barnes was kicked out of school for this uh, collage. Um, he, was, he had a note slipped under his door with this collage stapled to it, claiming that he was a quote-unquote clear and present danger to campus. Uh, the rationale was apparently that memorials usually happen after, after people are dead, so therefore this was a threat on the university president's life. <laughs> I'll let that think, sink in for a sec. The, um, now, what's, uh, what's funny about it, what gives truth, you know, demonstrates that this is just nonsense anyway, even the rationale, is the fact that they slipped the note under his door um, and told him he had 48 hours to get off campus. If you actually think someone is a, is a real danger to campus, is going to go around shooting people, you don't slip a note under his door to kick him out. And in, the case, uh, in this case, since it actually led to litigation, and the litigation, believe it or not, is still ongoing, with, with the student, by the way, who made this collage, winning it essentially every single step of, of, of the way, um, it's just come out that it's even worse than we thought. It was just a very naked um, situation in which a university president didn't like what a student had said and figured out a rationale to punish him, um, even though uh, some of his staff pushed back saying, listen, this is unconstitutional. We have to give due process. We have to protect freedom of speech. Um, but while those students, while those administrators were willing to defend Hayden Barnes in private, they did nothing when he was kicked out. So what, what scares me even more about this case is the fact that this is a very clear-cut case of a, a student um, engaging in responsible political speech on a, on a, on a serious topic, um, and he's kicked out flatly in violation of the Constitution, both due process and freedom of speech as it applies to public colleges. And no professors, no students, no protests, no... Uh, candlelight vig uh, vigils, nothing. Um, so in some ways, what I get wor more worried about is the apathy in a, in a lot of these cases. And it's not as if the law isn't strong. Um, the law is remarkably strong when it comes to the rights of, of, of due process and freedom of speech of college students. Um, going back into the 1970s and even before that, you have cases like Healy and uh, cases like Papish, very uh, strongly protecting speech that is <laughs> even if you could conceive of this as offensive, wildly more offensive and wildly more challenging than a simple collage picking on a, um, on a parking garage. So um, in the book, I really wish I had a picture section for the book, um, and th these are some of the other pictures I would have included in it. Um, this is a, a, a little bit of an older case. It's <coughs> University of New Hampshire. A student, um, uh, working class kid, uh, his, his mother worked at Walmart, his father was an electrician, and he was sick and tired of students taking the elevator not just up one floor, but down one floor. He thought that 18 to 19 year olds were healthy enough that they should be able to take the elevator up one floor or down one floor, uh, they should be able to take the stairs up one floor and down one floor. So he made a joke based on a step class um, that made a joke about the freshman 15. Nine out of 10 freshman girls can gain 10 to 15 pounds, but there's something you can do about it. Take the stairs if you live below the sixth floor. Not a joke I would make to my sisters. <laughs> but when this was discovered, um, and, and he admitted to it, um, first of all, he apologized as if he had committed a war crime. But that was not good enough. Um, the university found him guilty of violating the affirmative action policy, disorderly conduct, and harassment he was sentenced to mandatory psychological counseling. 
for this. I don't know what he talked to a shrink about, about this, what, what, what he'd even say. Probably I thought it was funny. <laughs> um, the, uh, tw he had to read 12 books. He was kicked out of the dormitory, had to live out of his car uh, for the weeks while we were fighting this case. Um, he had to write another confession of guilt um, that would be this time be approved by the university. And again, this is not a close call in terms of where this fits within the law. This is not something that would hold up in court, but the university s stuck to its guns on this even after Fire got involved. And it was only after the university received a call from the, the Daily Show, um, which had found out about this case thanks to, thanks to Fire, that the university finally, uh, finally backed down. But again, this is not a close call. And uh, another point that people sometimes make to try to say that this isn't happening or this isn't really that important on college campuses is to say um, that this isn't happening at the, at the fancy schools. Um, I, I find that, you know, one, it's elitist, and two, it's simply not true. Um, so, you know, I have a whole section in the book talking about bad cases at Yale and Harvard. Um, so this was, a, a, you know, another case that would have been in the, in the picture section if we had one. Um, this involves Harvard Business School. Um, at Harvard Business School, right before or right around uh, interview week, the computer system shut down at Harvard Business School, preventing students from being able to schedule appointments with big companies they wanted to go work with. Um, if this happened, if that happened at most business schools, uh, you, you'd expect the business students to riot. These are these are not, you know, uh, 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 these are pretty aggressive students in a lot of cases. But this was their major form of protest. They, in, in the student magazine for the Harvard Business School, they put up little um, uh, announcements um, giving all the different excuses that the university had come up with for, um, uh, uh, for, uh, the, the, for the system not working. Um, and this led the university president to uh, bring the editor into, the, um, uh, into his office and say that you're going to be held responsible for anything that we find offensive in your, uh, in your magazine again, leading the, uh, the, the, the head of the paper to, to step down, knowing that his, his days were numbered. Um, and once again, the university was willing to defend this in public um, for several weeks until they actually, after fire brought some negative uh, attention their way, was willing to back down. But they really, and, and the amazing thing is how this case merges self-interest and sort of pur purportedly uh, higher ideals, which is something that I see all the time. Um, universities, uh, what, what the claim was that this was insulting to the, uh, to the staff and therefore was not acceptable at Harvard Business School somehow seeming not to realize, or, or, or at least not stating, that this was critical of the administration, and an administrator was saying, you're going to get punished if you do anything like this again. Um, and, but meanwhile, he, the, the, the dean in question was taking the moral high ground on this. And it even gets down to things like branding. Um, this is a more recent case, which, I, which is just, it's silly, but, but, but I find it pretty ridiculous, because this always happens at least every other year we have a free speech case involving the game between Harvard and Yale. <laughs> um, I didn't even know there was such a thing until pretty recently. Like, they have football teams? Um, and this is the most recent one. Um, so then this is Yale and Harvard working together. Um, Yale, uh, and if you, for those of you who don't know, Yale and Harvard make fun of each other like crazy for this big deal, um, as, as far as they're concerned. And the... Um, uh, usually the t-shirts the are actually really pretty, you know, vulgar. Um, I think there was one year where it, where it was, you can't spell Harvard without VD, <laughs> what, was what they had. <laughs> but in recent years, they've gone for a little bit more highbrow approaches, um, a little bit more cutting, and they seem to be getting in more trouble the less vulgar the t-shirts the, the get. And in this case, it's pretty funny, actually. Um, how to be successful at Harvard. Step one, drop out. 
<laughs> and that's a, uh, uh, that's a like button, um, a Facebook like button, and it's got Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Matt Damon, and 69 <laughs> others liking it. <laughs> pretty, pretty clever, pretty funny. Um, so Yale actually tells the, stu the students that you're going to have to get the permission of Harvard in order to make fun of it. <laughs> That's hogwash. That's, the, that's just nonsense. You don't have to get someone's permission before you make fun of them. Um, and uh, so, but they, they brought this to Harvard's attention, and Harvard General Counsel said, no, you can't use, uh, you, you can't have this T-shirt. Um, and they ended up doing something that was, you know, similar, but they had to get rid of any, basically, any reference to Facebook. It was really, really quite ridiculous, but it was you know, Yale and Harvard working together for more of a, and this time it sort of morphed more into sort of a branding issue, um, which, which I, I feel like the direction things are going. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that these days you can get in trouble for not much of anything. Um, I, this, this year has been dominated by cases that include at University of Cincinnati, a libertarian student group that was trying to pass out a right to work initiative was told that it had to get to a, a free speech zone that consisted of 0.1% of the entire 137 acre campus. Um, and even to use that poultry space, they had to get 10 days advance notice in order to use it. Now, to, to the shock of no one, this was also um, not required of other groups. They had evidence that this was being enforced uh, against their particular viewpoint. Um, but, uh, and, they were, and the students were flat out told that if they were seen, quote unquote, walking around campus, um, they would be arrested. Amazingly, what, what stuns me about this case is I've gotten used to these kind of abuses, but what, what, what amazes me about this case more than anything else is the fact that um, the university decided that it was willing to go to court to defend this policy. I mean, you don't have to be a First Amendment uh, attorney. You don't even have to be, you just have to be an American citizen to know that this is wildly unconstitutional. But um, University of Cincinnati uh, was willing to go into court. And of course, like in, in most cases, this, this code get, got uh, laughed out of court. Um, this is not constitutional by any stretch of the imagination, but universities defend these speech zones at universities across the country. Um, University of Cincinnati, uh, right, right down the street though, Sinclair Community College, um, at the very same time has decided it wants to go into court to defend a uh, restriction on holding up signs, um, to having any signs on campus. And when we questioned this, this bar restriction on signs, the uh, campus president brought up 9-11 and the Virginia Tech massacres as if those were committed by signs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this stuff keeps, keeps on happening. And, the, um, and here is our uh, famous uh, evaluation of over 400 speech codes across, uh, across the country. We take the top um, uh, four, I think this year it's gonna be, as of this one, it's about 392 colleges. Um, and 29% of them um, we rate, uh, uh, so looking at all of the policies of 392 top colleges, including the top liberal arts colleges in the country and the top um, and most populous uh, public colleges in the country, um, we evaluate them according to red, yellow, and green, um, uh, and non-rated for schools that don't promise, for private colleges that don't promise free speech in the first place. 65% um, of colleges that we found have what we call red light speech codes, which means that they either, if they're a public college would or at a private college that does promise freedom of speech, um, uh, do, uh, w w would violate First Amendment standards. Um, six, and this is actually an improvement. It was about five years ago, it was more like 75% of colleges, <laughs> and there were only half as many uh, green light colleges. Green light colleges being colleges that have no codes that punish uh, speech whatsoever. But, it, and it's amazing that these codes um, 
persist because some of them are just manifestly ridiculous. Um, there was one that I've been talking about a, a lot just because people find it so funny. Um, University of Connecticut in the, uh, uh, in, in the late 80s passed a code that included bans on a variety of forms of harassment, including inappropriately directed laughter. This was defeated in a, uh, in a court of law. Unfortunately, it's an unpublished opinion. But for some reason, Drexel University, a university that prides itself on its commitment to freedom of speech, decided to resuscitate this ridiculous code. Um, and it was part of their policies um, up until we challenged it back in 2006. It took a couple of years for the students, a uh, libertarian group on campus, to uh, get the code overturned. Um, but uh, as, as we said, we, we have a, we've had a speech code of the month every month since 2005. And, um, and we're no, no danger of running out of speech codes. And every time, there's been well over a dozen challenges just in, uh, during my career to, to uh, speech codes on college campuses. They never hold up in, in, a, in a court of law. Um, they, they essentially get left out, but still we have 65% and, uh, of colleges maintaining these things. So, that, which brings me to my, to my next point and to, to my main point in the book, um, I want to point out how co campus censorship harms us all. Um, I think, unfortunately, we've gotten too used to this kind of nonsense on college campuses. I think at some level we think of it as maybe kind of, you know, silly, but kind of cute, no big deal. Um, and I think that the first point is that there's, of course, a chilling effect, um, that you don't need to punish anywhere near um, every student on campus to get a, most students to shut up or most students to be more careful about what they say or to throw a monkey wrench um, in the marketplace of ideas. Um, it only takes a few. It only takes students knowing that they can potentially get in trouble um, to shut up 999 out of 1,000 students. Um, and that's what I think you're seeing, at least in part, in the AACU study um, that, says, uh, that, that shows the miserable response rate for people saying whether or not it's safe to hold unpopular positions on campus. And students do have to worry about um, taking uh, uh, unpopular positions on important issues, whether it's terrorism um, at Penn State uh, University, where an artist was told that he couldn't make art that was critical of um, Palestinian uh, attempts to recruit children to be uh, suicide bombers. Now, he, he, he did art being critical of, uh, of this, and he um, was called into a, uh, prof uh, into a professor's office and told that, um, he should, that this was hate speech because criticizing terrorism is offensive to all Arabs. And if you think about that, that's a pretty offensive idea in, in and of itself. Um, and we, we see these kind of cases come, come up an awful, an awful lot. Um, whether or, or terrorism at SFSU, where students, um, in response to uh, American flag burning, stepped on a Hamas and Hezbollah flag, they were brought up on charges that changed every couple of weeks. Um, and they, first they char charged them with, I, I think it was flag burning, which of course manifestly ridiculous because it's clear under the Constitution that you can burn an American flag, you can cer certainly show respect to a um, uh, to Hamas and Hezbollah flag. And by the time um, a reporter called SFSU to defend the, the, the prosecution of these students, uh, the response by the university was, it's not so much flag burning, it's desecration of the name of Allah. Um, to me, this was really quite remarkable because this was the first time I'd ever heard someone uh, violate the establishment clause of the First Amendment in order to defend their, uh, their censorship of, of violating the free speech clause of the First Amendment. 
Um, so when it comes to also socially conservative issues, like religious attitudes about homosexuality, those are definitely ones that can get people in trouble and certainly get evangelical Christians uh, in trouble on campus. Um, I'm, uh, I'm personally not religious, but if you, and if you had told me before working here that, um, it, that I would see so many cases involving uh, pros, uh, punishments of evangelical Christians, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But uh, time after time, I, I've, I've seen these cases come up. Um, environmentalism, you know, if you contrast Valdosta, we also have a case right now at UCLA where Professor Jim Enstrom, professor of, of decades at that university, uh, they seem to be trying to railroad out of, uh, of his position because he pointed out that the research indicated that the justification for the California Air and Resource Boards, um, their, their scientific justification for regulating the entire uh, diesel industry of California, which is pretty recent, um, was based on science that was wrong at best, fraudulent at worst. And what's interesting about this case is that increasingly other researchers are coming forward saying, yeah, actually he was, he was probably right on this, that, that actually the research we based this on was probably just wrong. Um, so what does this lead to? Um, I think that the harms of this also, one of the reasons why this has probably gone in some ways out of the public consciousness, is that the harms from this are somewhat subtle. Um, that people don't really change their minds when they're censored. Um, what they do is they tend to talk to people they already agree with. And I think that most students have absorbed the rules of how not to get in trouble on campus. Uh, talk to people you agree with, don't bother arguing with certain professors um, in, in class, and everything ends up being uh, comparatively fine. The problem with this is that, in my opinion, it supercharges um, everything that's wrong with our society. Um, universities could be a place where uh, you teach the wonderful intellectual ethic of seeking, seeking out the intelligent person you disagree with, but that simply cannot happen if you can get in trouble for having the wrong, quote unquote, opinion um, on campus. And it's interesting because it, to, one, uh, as far as the polarization that's going on in our, in our country, it, I don't think that it's I don't think it's the university's fault that this is happening. I, I think that Bill Bishop's uh, 2007 book, I believe, uh, called *The Big Sort*, talks a lot about how polarization is actually taking taking root in in our, in our country, um, partially due to a lot of demographic factors. But higher education, in my opinion, is one of the best. Um, devices for potentially teaching people to overcome this polarization, to actually develop the intellectual habit, or even better yet, a sense of duty that you should seek out the intelligent person you disagree with. Um, and it can only make it worse if it's not actually facilitating these, uh, these discussions. Um, and certainly, and as, as I said, it cannot work if you can get in trouble for having the wrong opinion. Um, I also think this leads to a lower level of critical thinking skills. I think a lot of, of, of the critical thinking skills that develop on college campuses develop in part out of the classroom through good debates and discussions with uh, people uh, that you don't necessarily agree with. And if those people are being you know, uh, uh, encouraged to follow their own inclination to talk to people in a safer environment that they just agree with, those conversations increasingly won't happen. Um, and I thought a very telling um, uh, result of the, uh, the academically adrift uh, study that came out uh, in early 2011, um, which showed miserable uh, uh, development of critical thinking skills stats uh, for, for uh, students in the entire uh, course of the, uh, of the study, um, that one of the questions, one of the, one of the tests for whether or not they develop critical thinking skills was whether or not students could quote unquote make an argument or break an argument. Um, in other words, could they take another, the other side in an argument? And it showed absolutely miserable results. 45% of students in the entire scale of the study showed no improvement in critical thinking skills, including their ability to take the other side in an argument. And I think that, you know, 
at least part of the explanation is the fact that they're being discouraged from having, having fun with arguments. I think we put a lot, way too much emotional weight around what could otherwise be one of the best parts of your college experience. It can actually now be risky. So I think we're actually living in, in, what, uh, you know, in, in what might be called uh, a John Stuart Mill's nightmare. Um, that in, in his great uh, 1859 book on liberty, he talks about all the different justifications for freedom of speech. It's still one, one of my favorites, along actually with Jonathan Rausch's um, Kindly Inquisitors. And he points out that um, even if you happen to be that person who's right about 100% of everything, um, unlucky you, um, you are you still benefit from freedom of speech because if uh, because you're Ideas cease to be living and real things within you if you, uh, if you don't understand and you're not challenged on why you hold them in the first place. And, we, and, and what Mill predicted was that in a situation without enough debate and discussion, without, that didn't allow for enough debate and discussion, people would hold their beliefs the same way they hold prejudices. That they hold them, uh, they can explain to you every belief that they have, they just can't articulate why they have them. And I think it's hard to go on a college campus these days and not run into that all the time. I think it's hard to go in American society right now to talk to people and not see this at work, that people know precisely where they stand on every issue and they can't for the life of them explain why. Um, and I think this has something to do with the monkey wrench that's been thrown in the, in, in the marketplace of ideas by uh, censorship in higher education. So, um, and the second, uh, the second harm that I talk about is um, uh, probably much graver. Um, I, I think that the first one, the polarization, is just making us more tedious and harming the, the, uh, what, what could, we, we should expect to be able to be living in a, in a golden age of American discourse right now. More people are college educated than ever before in our history, and therefore we should be, discourse should not just be um, uh, as good as it's been before, it should be much, much better. And I don't think anyone's arguing that we're in a golden age of discourse. So I think that this is something that could make us, potentially make us just much more of a tedious country to, li to listen to the news in. Um, but the second harm is something that's more threatening to uh, all of our freedoms, which is that students, th and the first half of it is that students are getting really used to being told what they can, uh, what, what they can say and how they can say it. I was on an NPR program just a couple weeks ago with a student who, um, without any sense of, of irony whatsoever, and it was critical of the way the university, um, a, a state university in Kansas, had treated her student newspaper, she said, um, yeah, well, our university is pretty good. It's true, uh, uh, and, and they enforce the 10-day waiting period for the free speech zone um, very fairly. <laughs> it never occurred to her that it was absolutely outrageous to ask people uh, t for 10 days advance notice to get permission from a government official in order to exercise their First Amendment rights. I think students, a combination of both K through 12 and higher education are, are preparing students that are just much too trusting in authority um, and don't really understand the, the deep and wonderful principles that go behind uh, concepts like freedom of speech and due process. So, um, and I think the long-term, um, the long-term uh, harm is that I think students are coming to expect and see censorship as something normal. Um, but even worse is the, are, are the few true believers who come to see censorship as a normal, uh, romantic, even ennobling force. Um, I think this is in the minority, but I do think that there, there's a lot, the, the, the moral force um, is presented a lot of times in being on the side of the censor. And let's take this quite literally. That's Sally Jacobson, um, a professor at uh, Northern Kentucky University. Um, that is a university-approved um, uh, pro-life display involving a series of small crosses. 
Uh, she went in front of her class and she explained that we must exercise our First Amendment rights to destroy that pro-life display. So she managed to get pictured. She was very happy and smiling to be pictured doing this. And she marched her students out to destroy it, believing from all accounts that she was exercising her First Amendment rights by destroying someone else's speech. You don't have a First Amendment right to destroy someone else's speech. So that's pretty basic. Um, and, I th and when I see a phenomena like newspaper theft on campus, where students go out and they destroy entire press runs of newspapers that run articles that students simply dislike in some cases. In some cases, fraternities dislike it. In one case, a sorority destroyed an entire press run because there was an article about their sorority house having mold. Um, this shows a really disturbing lack of understanding of what it means to live in a free society. And, I, and as I said, I think students are learning the lessons. Um, this is at Pepperdine, but we've seen this repeated um, at, at, at campus after campus, uh, at, uh, where students have put up free speech walls, where it's a great social experiment. Put up a wall, uh, Students for Liberty has been doing this at, at schools around the country, and, and unfortunately have gotten the, the, a similar response. You put up a free, free speech wall, have people write on it, God forbid, whatever they want, and it actually turns out that most of what students have to say, even though they swear a lot, um, is sometimes kind of funny or wise or interesting. Um, and occasionally some, uh, some small part of the speech might be offensive, which leads to um, students, uh, in this case, it was a student who tore down the free speech wall, and then when he was interviewed about it, totally acted as if he was the hero, he, that he had right and truth and beauty on his side because he got rid of the bad and ugly free speech wall that was overwhelmingly covered in things that were thoughtful, interesting, nice, and funny. Um, the same thing happened actually at Sam Houston State University. We did a video about this, uh, the SFL chapter there, put up a free speech wall. Also filled with you know, funny, interesting um, uh, statements, including someone writing, uh, well, fuck Obama. Um, a professor came out and took box cutters to the, the, the swear, cut out the, uh, cut out the expletive, um, and then the university called, uh, the, the students called the university police saying, this guy just vandalized our approved free speech wall. And when the university police showed up, they, they said that you'll either have to censor your own free speech wall or take it down. So the students didn't want to make a mockery of the free speech wall, so they took it down. Um, but having to, getting back to basics, saying that it's pretty much central to the Constitution that you should be able to criticize the commander-in-chief however you like. And interestingly enough, students had already done this. They, they actually, in response to um, what, what, the, what they had written about um, Obama, people wrote all different other presidents, you know, uh, uh, wrote the same thing. And so, but speech answering speech was clearly not enough. Censorship w w was the answer. So to me, this, this is the scariest part of it, that, um, uh, uh, that people are blown away when you, when you point out that the First Amendment has always been the defender of minority rights, of the rights of dissenters, of the rights of oddballs, of the strange, of the outcast. Um, you don't need a separate amendment to, to uh, protect popular majoritarian speech. Um, but unfortunately, I, I think in some cases, the, the censors on campus have taken the, uh, have taken the high ground. So, you know, in closing, I would just like to say, um, to quote Alan Charles Coors, because I think he, he, says, he says it best, um, a nation that does not educate in liberty will not long endure in liberty and will not even know when it is lost. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, now, usually it's our philosophy of Cato, or always, to try and bring someone from the other side to debate this. 
Greg had expressed skepticism that that could even be possible, which sort of fulfills his entire <laughs> premise of the very books. Many people who agree with these speech codes don't want to come out here publicly and say that they, they do. So he said, what, two people in 11 years have ever debated here? Yeah. So, <laughs> it's something like that. So, and they both also showed up and, and said, essentially, that they agree with us when they showed up to debate us, which is... Yeah. So it struck me that it was a, probably a good idea to get Students for Liberty involved with this, which is an organization that I work very closely with. And uh, we have two of their leaders here today. Uh, first up is going to be Kelly Jemison. Uh, she's a DC native with a BA in economics from, the James, from James Madison University. While at James Madison, Kelly founded the pro-liberty organization called Madison Liberty. Under her leadership, Madison Liberty became a strong force for liberty on campus. Following the success of her group, her senior year, Kelly went on to join the executive board of Students for Liberty, a national nonprofit dedicated to promoting pro-liberty ideas on campus. After graduating, she spent a year in the Koch Associate Program, working as Students for Liberty's program manager. She is now SFL's events manager and oversees SFL's fall regional conferences, of which there were 15 this year and five in Europe, and the upcoming international conference, which will be in the middle of February. So uh, please welcome Kelly Jemison. Uh, thank you so much, Trevor, and thank you, Greg, for writing such an important book for our time. So I am actually going to speak about um, my own personal journey at JMU um, and changing the speech codes that we had there. So this started in 2009 when I went to my first Students for Liberty Regional Conference in Philadelphia. Um, there I heard Samantha Harris of FIRE uh, speak about uh, how universities often censor their students. So I never realized there are so many you know, instances of students' free, own free speech being harmed on campus. So when I got back to school, I looked up JMU on the FIRE website and found that we were actually one of those yellow light schools. And we had numerous speech codes on our campus. Um, I then decided to make it my, my own personal mission to change those speech codes in the time that I was at JMU. So the first uh, policy we sought to change was the obscene conduct policy. Um, now this is a policy that really had strong overreach by the administration, basically having the ability for the administration to, to punish students for things they did off campus, um, even on platforms like Facebook. Um, so if they didn't like something students did, they could suspend or even expel them. And the, the language in it was extremely subjective and just overly broad. So our first tactic in attempting to change this policy was just raising public awareness. Now, the president of our group at the time, John Scott, uh, did a great job of this. He was in the student government and had a big presence on campus. So when he wrote an op-ed, people listened. And we were able to gain enough support to actually have a rally. And that rally led to even more coverage and the students were going from there. Uh, at the end of this big campaign on campus, we actually got so much support that the administration was almost begging us to tell them how we could change the policy so that it was more in line with the Constitution. So after seeing that first success, I realized that this wasn't going to be quite as easy as I thought at the beginning, but it definitely was within our power to change these policies. Uh, the next policy we worked on was the peaceful assembly policy. Now, much like what Greg was talking about, students having to give advance notice to the university for having a, a peaceful demonstration, our speech, our, our policy said that a peaceful protest had to be registered 48 hours in advance with the university. Now, in theory, maybe this sounds like a good idea, you know, given the university some notice about a demonstration that was going to take place. However, this would actually limit students from handing, holding, holding a candlelight vigil for an immediate tragedy or something like that. So John had now graduated from JMU, so it was left up to me to really take the lead on this issue. 
Now, my strengths weren't so much in gaining huge support on campus. I didn't really have the resources available to launch some huge activism project. So instead, I relied on my own strengths, which were just being extremely persistent with administrators. So I made a lot of phone calls, <laughs> sent a lot of emails, much to the dismay of the administrators who were in charge of these policies. And I, I actually um, was able to find one administrator in seeking to change the Peaceful Assembly's policy that was actually very supportive of our, of our cause. Uh, she recognized that the language should be changed more to recommend 48 hours, 48 hours notice, that is, and, instead of requiring it. But even one administrator on our side wasn't really enough. And even though she you know, brought up our position at board meetings and such, it wasn't really as easy as I was hoping, even though she was on our, on our side with things. So after numerous um, meetings and months and waiting and waiting to hear back and following up with her, they actually did finally change the policy. But I realize now this is actually going to be a much longer battle than I had immediately expected. Another policy I took a very similar tactic with was a harassment policy. Again, um, gave the administration far more overreaching power and in a very subjective manner to punish students for things they called harassment. So uh, the administrator I worked with on this one, I finally did get through to him. Um, he wasn't so much against our cause, he just really didn't care. <laughs> he had no reason to help us out, and he had a meeting with me, which is nice of him, but um, <laughs> wasn't really going to do anything without a lot of badgering from me. So that policy took a lot longer to work on, but we eventually actually got that one changed as well with just simple persistence and a lot of work from my other group members on the issue. Now, I never would have known the right language to use on these policies and what to suggest without FIRE's help. I actually emailed Samantha while I was working on these and got you know, the right language set. So I'm ever grateful to FIRE for assisting us with those policies in particular. Now, our, the last policy that we still had in the books that was a yellow light policy was the posting policy. And this basically uh, said that you cannot depict alcohol or drugs on a flyer that went up on campus. Now again, in theory, this sounded like a good idea. Maybe, you know, I think it was originally conceived because not so that um, off-campus parties wouldn't be promoted on campus. However, this actually was going to um, you know, affect an event we were about to have because we were planning to have a discussion about uh, legalizing marijuana on campus. Um, so this was an event, a, a approved event on campus, and we wanted to promote it, you know, like any other group would. But the flyer, the posting policy, said that we actually couldn't promote this event because we would have to use the word marijuana <laughs> in, in the flyer. So, you know, we contacted the administration and told them, like, you know, look, like, this policy actually is going to negatively affect us if we actually want to, you know, like, you know um, promote our event in accordance with the school rules. And didn't really get um, much feedback from them. You know, got one response, like, we'll work on it. <laughs> Great. So we decided to actually test the administration on this own policy. And you know, what's the worst that can happen? They don't approve our flyers, and you know, we'll keep working at it. So we took, you know, printed off 100 of these flyers. You know, the student administration had to approve each one individually. And we, we made it just, just to really see if they would actually pay attention. We, we used the word marijuana really, really large. Just there was no mistake. And went there, and they approved every single one. <laughs> They weren't even enforcing this policy. So we thought, OK, well, we'll try again next week, different person, just to see. Again, approved all the flares. Now, 
for the immediate you know, um, promotion of our event, this was great. They weren't actually enforcing their own policy. But, you know, I emailed the administrator. I'm like, look, you don't actually enforce this policy. You know, why have it on the books? And she says, oh, well, if they're not enforcing it, that's great then. I'm like, that's not the point. Like, just because right now, you know, the administration isn't, you know, terribly antagonistic toward us doesn't mean in the future that a new administrator couldn't come in and suddenly decide, oh, you know, I don't like what you guys are doing. I think I'm going to stop you now. So uh, calling them out on that actually, I think, helped a lot in the end. And um, I unfortunately couldn't get this policy changed while I was still at JMU. But luckily, I had done a good job of training my leadership, so they continued on um, in my absence at JMU. And uh, last fall, we actually got the last um, policy there changed to a green light policy, uh, making all of JMU's uh, policies green light. And I'm making us one of that, that small percentage of green light schools <laughs> in the US, uh, which is a really exciting day for me um, and a great victory for free speech at JMU. So I actually, after graduating, got the chance to start working for Students for Liberty, um, where I ran our big free speech week last year. Uh, free speech week was a great success. And kind of you know, thinking about my difficulties I'd had on campus when I didn't really have the resources to launch an activism event, you know, the Free Speech Week was a, an opportunity for me to kind of give grants to students to do free speech walls and, you know, provide them resources to kind of raise that public awareness that I had had a hard time doing um, when I was in school. Um, in addition, you know, with a partnership from FIRE, we were able to distribute hundreds of, of FIRE's handbooks um, to kind of once again give students those tools that they needed to, you know, actually figure out what, what policies were wrong and, and, and use the right language to do so. In the end, um, yeah, free speech was a great success, Students for Liberty. Um, we had over 80 groups across the country involved, and I'd really like to think that we, we had made a, a, raised a lot of awareness for the problems that um, students face on campus when just trying to speak freely. Um, in closing, I'll just mention that it's, it's important to remember that uh, fighting for free speech isn't as simple as just changing a few policies and then going along assuming free speech will be protected from there on out. Um, actually, recently, JMU, unfortunately, has re-amended its harassment policy so that now the language, again, is overly subjective and, and not in accordance with the First Amendment. And if, you know, Fire and Madison Liberty are already working on changing this policy back so that it's, it can be a green light policy, however, if we don't get it changed soon, we're going to become one of those yellow light schools yet again. Um, so I'd just say that, you know, this isn't a battle we can win in a few weeks or even a few years. It's an ongoing fight to maintain, you know, that students can speak freely and that we need to continue holding the administrators of these schools accountable going forward. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kelly. I imagine that probably JMU's uh, adjustment had to do with the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, coming from the Obama administration who asked schools to change their codes, which is its own problem we could do a different event on. But now I'd like to introduce Alexander McCoben. He is the president of Students for Liberty. He holds a BA in philosophy and economics and an AM in philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania. During his time at Penn, Alexander began the University of Pennsylvania Libertarian Association to promote discussion and education of libertarian ideas on campus and expand his horizons regarding the power of the message of liberty. In the summer of 2007, he was an intern at the Reason Foundation, working on privatization efforts, and at the same time, he ran a nonprofit organization to promote youthful debate, education, and underserved students in the greater Philadelphia and Mid-Atlantic region. He spent the following year working as a Coke associate here at Cato, focusing on market and development. He is currently a third-year graduate student at Georgetown University, pursuing his PhD in philosophy with areas of interest in political philosophy and business ethics. Alexander? 
<laughs> Thank you everyone for being here. We've already heard incredible stories about the tribulations that students are facing on campus and what some students are doing to fight the damaging policies that are being implemented around the country and realistically around the world. What I simply want to do right now is supplement everything that you've heard by highlighting the distinctly political nature of a lot of these free speech restrictions that are going on and sometimes directions by universities. And the fact that it's fantastic that there's an organization like the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education out there. I don't know what these policies would look like across the United States today if it didn't exist. But FIRE has a limited capacity right now. It has a finite number of staffers who are already working at around the clock on these sorts of policies. And it has a limited mission to US colleges and universities. So it can't reach out and deal with every case that is going on out there. And there are really important cases that need to be addressed. Just a few weeks ago, the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom had a particularly interesting case of restrictions of freedom of speech, where the university's student union, which has control over the budgets for all student organizations on campus, sent out an email to, ev to every student organization there saying that anyone who wanted to be guaranteed funding for the rest of the year by obtaining silver or gold status through the student union had to, had to purchase 10 tickets that cost eight pounds, 50 pence each to show support for the national student movement demo 2012 to go and attend this rally that was anti-tuition fees and anti-spending cuts, a demonstration that every student group had to get tickets to and support to get funding from the university for their organization. Now, this wasn't just for political groups on campus. It applied to amateur comedic opera societies. It applied, it, it applied to literary societies. It was for every student group was told, become political and support these political activities to access funding from the university. Now, luckily, it seems as though the story actually ended up OK, because within the first 24 hours of this happening, the University of Manchester Liberty League, the libertarian student group on campus, began to rally other organizations around opposition to this policy being implemented by the student union. They created a petition and within four hours had over 200 signatures. Within, a within another day, over 400 signatures. And was able to get the student union to initially say that there was a misunderstanding with the policy, but then fully retract it, saying that this was something that they were going to look into more deeply later on. Now, it's great that they were retracting the policy almost immediately after there was significant opposition to it, but the University of Manchester Liberty League is continuing to highlight this abuse and the fact that this policy nearly went into effect because if we don't raise awareness about these issues and if individuals on a university setting are not raising awareness, then it's all too easy for future instances to, go, to, fall, to be able to pass by the wayside without being noticed. Following up on that, even here in the United States, there are many cases of free speech violations going on on campus that are unknown because students are unwilling to speak up against the administration or against what's happening because there are such damaging repercussions to their, to their academic careers or potentially could be. One of Students for Liberty's leaders who was at a school that hosted one of the presidential debates this year 
tried to organize an event in addition to presenting the conservative and liberal views that were going to be hosted for an entire week on campus culminating in the debates between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, this individual wanted to present a libertarian perspective as well, a small L libertarian perspective, not promoting any political party, but just presenting different ideas. And they wanted to bring John Stossel and David Bowes from the Cato Institute on campus. Figured those are both individuals who are not a part of a political party. They're going to present certain philosophical views. It should be fine to bring them on campus. According to the administration, though, that was unacceptable. David Bowes was too partisan to attend, even though Karl Rove was going to be speaking that week. <laughs> George W. Bush was speaking the week before. Those were acceptable individuals. David Bowes combined with John Stossel, they couldn't let that happen on campus. <laughs> John Stossel was only allowed to come on because he was a journalist. He wasn't invited because of his political views or wasn't allowed to really be there because of his political philosophy. He was only allowed to be there to present a nonpartisan journalistic perspective on what's happening. As much as this student and the student's organization was enraged by this, as much as this was a clear violation of their rights in trying to present a new perspective on campus, they were unwilling to take up the challenge to the university because they were unsure what would potentially happen to them, to the, not just to the club, but their academic careers. And this is the sort of thing that goes on all the time. It's not just a case that we're talking about some people misinterpreting a joke or some people being offended by an offhand remark. It's that there are very serious ramifications for political discourse on campus whether it's silencing the libertarian perspective or mandating students to have a certain perspective in order to receive certain benefits from their university. And the only way that, this, that these can be addressed is through organizations like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, awareness like this, but most importantly in my mind, through engagement from individuals in the university settings themselves, particularly students. In many of the cases where either red light or yellow light fire schools have been converted into green light schools, it's because there are stories like Kelly Jemison, a student or a group of students there who took responsibility for changing those policies, ideally before these problems start to arise, so that they have a policy in place that's better able to protect them. There are other cases like Brom Katz at, William and, at the College of William and Mary who was able to make that school green light. Drexel University that Greg that Greg alluded to in amending their, their policies there. The list goes on and on. The point, though, is that we need to take these sorts of issues seriously because it gets at the very heart of what freedom of speech means. It might be the case that people don't like to hear profanity. And so the Sam Houston State case gets a little bit difficult for people. But we are talking about political speech nonetheless. And it's sometimes not only appropriate, but necessary to use profanity to express your views about what's going on in politics. And that sort of discourse needs to be protected. I can't thank Greg, Greg enough for writing this book and for everything that FIRE has done. Back when I was a student at Penn, they helped me with some problems we were running into with university funding myself. They've been an incredible source of support for Students for Liberty. And I encourage everyone to not just read this book, but learn more about FIRE and get involved because it is so important to the future of this country and this world, frankly. Thank you. Our time for questions is somewhat truncated because we began a little bit late, but uh, 
please uh, raise your hand, wait for me to call on you, uh, wait for the microphone so everyone can hear you, and uh, state your name and any affiliation you're willing to own up to. So, uh, here. My name is Stephen Shore. No one mentioned the Supreme Court case whose um, name I forget, but it was the bong hits for Jesus. Oh, yeah. Where, Frederick V. Um, Morris. Yeah. The idea was that high schools, you have to reach, apparently reach college before you have First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. And you, you could make a, I would certainly, a countervailing argument that if you don't, the earlier you get used to exercising your rights, the more proficient you will be when you get to college. So any thoughts of how where we go after the bong hits for Jesus case. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, bong hits for Jesus is a frustrating case on so many different levels. It is so poorly decided. It, 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 watching the spectacle of Chief Justice Roberts um, trying to figure out what bong hits for Jesus means and <laughs> <laughs> and what he does is he decides to actually use brackets. And so in, 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 a, in a Supreme Court opinion, it, um, he, he has, maybe it means bong hits for Jesus, brackets are good, or <laughs> brackets do bong hits for Jesus. And I'm like, this is exactly why we do not have judges look into the meaning of freaking jokes. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, so it's a terrible opinion. It, 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 it played with the fiction that essentially this was promoting drug use, that essentially this was actually a way of saying, but uh, Alito tried to make this untenable sort of distinction between, but if someone was saying that maybe drugs should be legal, it, it just, it, the, the opinion makes no sense. And what it comes, comes down to is that the Supreme Court has been pretty bad on rights for, for K through 12 students. Um, and I don't, I hope that will improve, but I'm not super optimistic. What FIRE really wants to do um, is at least sort of, to some extent, cut our losses and start reaching out to students in high schools. We have, we have a scholarship right now. Oh, by the way, we're offering $20,000 in scholarship money for, for students who will just watch some videos about freedom of speech on campus um, so they will come in armed um, knowing that they don't have to put up with this stuff. Um, it's still uh, it, it's available to January 2nd. If you know high school students, it's for uh, juniors and seniors um, in, in high school. Um, and definitely, you, you know, uh, consider s spreading the word about this. But if I could add one more person to the fire staff, it would be someone who did um, outreach and education to high school students because just a handful of additional high school students knowing, wait a second, I, like, there's a whole chapter devoted to the crazy program at University of Delaware. Um, knowing that this is not even a close call, that this is wildly unconstitutional, I think we'd be in a much better position. But, gr but great, great question. Uh, on the aisle back here. Uh... Michael Enders. Um, I wanted to make two quick points. I think they're related. Uh, the first is a, a quick quote from the Bard College Bulletin. Mm -hmm. Uh, the right to defend the unpopular thing must not only be defended, it must be exercised, which I think says, says it quite well. Uh, second point, it seems to me that political correctness, which I don't think was mentioned by anybody yet, um, is an untoward uh, side effect of the civil rights movement. And I wonder if any of you have considered the proposition that we won't have effective free speech until we resolve uh, racial problems in the culture. Yeah, I, I talk about political correctness in the book. I partially don't use it um, as much as other people, partially because I feel like it's a term that liberals and conservatives define so differently from each other that it's almost uh, it's almost useless. Um, not quite useless, but I do talk about political correctness a lot, uh, a, a lot in the book. And I think that um, I try to point out how far it's it uh, it's got off its mooring from even any rational connection to even any important cause, even even the. Um, 
uh, you know, the cause of racial equality or the cause of, of, of a lot of things represented by the Civil, uh, Civil Rights Act, when you see the way it morphs just like any abuse of power, uh, any sort of amorphous power does, and you start having case after case where students or administrators are just punishing the college Republicans because they don't like them, or they're punishing the legalization kids if they don't. And my, my favorite expression of, of the way these things have morphed was probably at a case um, in Florida at a college where a, a, a student actually wanted to, 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 to table, um, to, to hand out materials for PETA. And the answer she got from an administrator was, you can't do that because I'm not a fan of PETA. There was, and it was it was great because there was no there was no sort of like uh, that I just have the I just have arbitrary power over as much speech as I want. So I, I definitely do think that um, you know some clarification of what uh, you know because when it comes to you know the problem with the law. Um, and what's going on on campus is there's a huge disconnect there too. The way universities define harassment, harassment is the most common tool of, of, of speech codes, but certainly not the only tool uh, of speech codes, um, ha has nothing to do with the actual definition of harassment in terms of Supreme Court law. And, there, and e if, we could, if we could at least get um, the, the, the opinion in Davis, uh, the Davis case that the Supreme Court uh, heard back in uh, 2000, um, if we get that decision, that, those standards at most colleges and campus on the country, it would be a world improvement from these ridiculous codes that we, we fought one last year at Chico that defined a harassment as, as including a, a, a sign uh, this would be harassment according to the plain language of the policy that if you use the generic or uh, masculine or feminine terms repeatedly. So pretty much any major publication would be considered by its own definition. And, and we've gotten very used to, and, and this is what scares me so much, is students have gotten used to codes that by their plain wording make every single man, woman, and child on that campus guilty of violating them, and we think this is okay. And if I can jump in, I don't think the term political correctness is one that's often used on campus anymore. That's not the justification for a lot of the policies in place today. It's more nuanced things like off offensiveness or harassment or just this general, we have the power to do whatever we want sort of <laughs> attitude. A lot of the political correctness issues were dealt with back in the 90s, and there actually were a lot of free speech victories for that. So administrators and universities in general are coming up with new justifications for why they're able to regulate speech right now. Yeah, they're thrilled about bullying. Thing we have to do. Yeah, yeah. and I think that um, I was watching the political correctness debate was sort of the first wave, the 90s debate. And I was watching, you remember the movie PCU, the <laughs> which is a, a Wish movie it was a better was movie. making fun of political correctness on the 90s, and it was supposed to be so extreme that no one would believe it, and now it looks like a documentary about current university. <laughs> so, uh, in the back there, the Hi, my name's Bridget Ulrich. I'm from Georgia State University, and I'm dealing with what I think are First Amendment issues there. But my question isn't about that. It's about, um, do you think the economy is affecting students' capacity to want to express dissenting opinions? Um, because I definitely saw that in class where my professors would actually ask, why is it that Bridget is the only one willing to talk in class and the rest of you are afraid to talk? And my that answer, of course, was I wasn't afraid of them. That, that is a great and really interesting question. I'm, I'm actually uh, reading a book, Anti-Fragile, right now by, by, by Taleb. And, you know, he, he's, he's a very interesting speaker, but it's always entertaining to read his stuff. And he talks about debt as being a fragilizing force. Um, that essentially, uh, you know, if you have uh, $240,000, $60,000 a year for four years of college riding on your back to make sure that you graduate, you're going to be a little bit more obedient than your, uh, th th than your average um, student with, who has no debt. So I do think that the, our huge 
huge reliance on massive debt in order to put people through college. It probably has at least some co contribution to um, students being afraid to challenge administrators. A mile up there. Uh, my name is Jim Duholm, no, no affiliation. Uh, remedial question, or series of questions. It strikes me that uh, the administrators uh, who uh, supervise these programs or impose them have a limited liability at, at best. Mm, great so question. has any thought been given to seeking personal damages on a, an intentional inflection of uh, a mental distress or some such theory, number one, number two, how about permanent injunctions mm -hmm. against the schools? And number three, maybe turn about as fair a play, try to get judges to require sensitive sensitivity training among the administrators mm -hmm. to attend classes on the First Amendment. Uh, mean, have those kinds of remedies been considered? There's so much fun, so many fun things to unpack in there, and you, you're, you, you're you're getting to. Um, actually, what what sort of fires grand legal strategy is, and it's something that I, I you know I, I like to talk about whenever I have the opportunity to, is that um, state uh, uh, officials only have uh, immunity from uh, personal liability for violating the Constitution in a qualified sense. That means if they know that they're violating the Constitution, um, like uh, and and they sh or, or they should have known, um, they can be held personally liable um, by piercing what's called qualified immunity, and this to us is part of the key to winning um, and. Uh, but what it takes is, uh, there, there are two standards for qualified immunity, or two, uh, two hurdles. One is just the, the sort of duh aspect, like everybody should have known that this was an unconstitutional behavior by a state official. But there's another way to overcome it, which is um, actual notice. So we had this you know, idea that we thought was tremendously fun, so it was for a bunch of lawyers, to send certified mail letters explaining to something like 270 universities across the country, um, you know, actually have to get a signature on them and putting them on notice, actual notice, that they are in violation of the Constitution and in, in, in their codes. And we do this about every year or two or every time a, a major decision comes out, which is actually pretty uh, often. And it felt, uh, we also had someone write an article saying that administrators should not be given qualified immunity because the law is so clear with regards to free speech on college campuses. Um, so it's, it can now be cited. It was in a, published in a major administrative law Journal. Believe it or not, there are major administrative law journals, um, and uh, and it was it felt great this summer in the University of Cincinnati case that ridiculous 0.1 percent 10 days advance notice case that they cited the fact that we had uh, the, that they'd actually been put on notice and had a certified mail letter. Um, uh, and so it, it's starting to work. That being said, I've always been um, worried about litigation. One because it's it, it's quite expensive. Two because fire achieves so much. Um, we win so many cases by just publicly outing the ridiculous behavior by universities. Um, but we ha did have this speech codes litigation project on the side where we've litigated, we've wor worked with cooperating attorneys to litigate um, uh, cases. And every single one of those cases, uh, there's been eight of these lawsuits and every single one of them we've won because again, these are not close calls. Um, now I'm starting to wonder if maybe eight isn't enough. Maybe uh, maybe it's more like eighty. I mean, the, the, so it's something that I'm looking for in 2000, uh, 2030 to possibly we're considering massively stepping up the uh, the, the speech codes litigation project. Uh, we've got to change the incentives on campus because right now, partially because of the risk management industry, there is an incentive to overreact. Um, and certainly, no, it won't make political correctness, if you want, want to call it that, won't make some of this nonsense go away. But at the very least, what you want to do 
and what we're trying to do with the qualified immunity thing is the lawyers and the ideologues are pointing in the right, in, sorry, in the same direction right now. They're, they're both for overreacting, but for different reasons. If we could turn the lawyers on the ideologues, then we stand a fighting chance. And that's one of my big hopes in, in 2013 to be able to do, it's a big, bold, crazy program. I could talk to you more about it in, uh, at, at, at lunch, um, but we really would like to be able to really step that up. And for your final point, for First Amendment sensitivity training, um, Harvey Silverglade has a funny story about this, is that um, a, a judge sentenced uh, a, a, a George, was it George Mason? It was the uh, IOTA case. Um, it was a fraternity um, a speech case. Um, I think it was George Mason. Um, but uh, ordered uh, a free First Amendment free speech sensitivity training in that. And Harvey's point was, we do not believe that anybody should be trained against an, uh, in an ideology they do not believe in um, as, as part of the right of private conscience. Um, I would actually be pretty okay um, if, if fire, for example, um, and we have been very rarely invited to give lectures on for example, the, the beautiful, and, and, and it's more to emphasize sort of the beauty uh, of it in some, ca in some cases, um, and, and sense and, uh, and, um, uh, of the First Amendment law to incoming students and also to administrators. I mean, it's amazing. You explain some of the most basic ideas of what it means to live in a pluralistic free society that have been known for centuries, and it, you, you will have some administrators just blown away because they've never heard it before in their entire lives. And, and I mean, it's great. It's fun to be able to show them that. It's horrifying that they don't know it already. Uh, Stanley Cook, a legal question. Obviously, when you're talking about the First Amendment, yeah. you can go to public schools. Right. Now, are you reaching private schools through the 64 Civil Rights Act, or where's your lever? Uh, the, the leverage there it comes from um, primarily the way we beat private. So, so based, just real, real quickly, uh, the First Amendment doesn't apply directly to colleges. It applies to the due process um, uh, uh, clause of the Fourteenth Amendment for historical reasons that I think are kind of nonsensical. Um, and but it applies to public all public colleges. When it comes to private colleges. Um, in most states in the union, they're bound, not all of them, they're, they're bound by their contractual promises. So if a university promises to high heaven freedom of speech, like most liberal arts colleges do, they have some amount of legal obligation to it. But FIRE does go beyond the legal obligation in that sense. Our, our position is whether it will, it, it's the best thing to go into court with or not. Um, you have written Yale or Harvard in plain language. Yale has a beautiful free speech policy. They talk about being able to mention the unmentionable and think the unthinkable and question the unquestionable. It's stirring and beautiful and they get billions of dollars um, and they get the best some of the best students in the country and some of the best faculty in the country and our position is you better live up to that promise at that, at that college. And the nice thing is with schools that are concerned about their reputation, you do have leverage um, on, the, on that moral call. And some, fun, funnily enough, it's not actually as hard to fight the private colleges sometimes as people think because a, most of them are concerned about their reputation. It's hardest to fight, in some cases, small community colleges that just don't give a damn about being sued or anything else. Like We find that those are some of the most tenacious colleges we deal with. Meanwhile, the private ones you can usually beat in the court of public opinion. One more question here. My name is Bob Ware. I'm the uh, news director for Voice for Men. Uh, we're a men's rights organization. Uh, maybe you've heard of us on my call. Um, I have two questions for you. I'm going to try to make this really quick. Sure. Uh, but I wanted to bring uh, to the, the, your attention uh, something you're probably are already aware of, events that happened on the University of Toronto campus about three weeks ago. I, I, I can't, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Can you oh, speak I'm up I'm sorry. Little? Yeah, I wanted to bring to um, your attention uh, some events that happened on the University of Toronto campus about three weeks ago okay. where Dr. Warren Farrell 
uh, a men's rights uh, advocate and speaker, came to speak on campus. And he was met by a very angry mob of uh, 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 feminists who were organized by the student union uh, uh, who blocked the entrance and um, uh, became violent. And there were some arrests made, and, it was, and they were calling the guy a, a rape apologist and a, an incest apologist, a completely ridiculous, absolutely not true. But we, what he was going to talk about was the state of men and boys in, in, higher, in, in education, actually the state of men and boys in society and how boys are having a hard time starting um, you know, the dwindling rates of uh, educational attainment um, amongst males, amongst many other things. And I wanted to, um, and I, I wanted to point out this was this is not an isolated instance. Sure. There's a law. There's a there's a long history, and I wanted to, to basically single out feminist ideologues on campus mm -hmm. because they are a discernible group of people. Uh, and there's a very long history of um, engaging in, in acts of what what can only be described as thuggery. Mm -hmm. uh, you know threatening personal destruction of careers, uh, oftentimes threats of violence. And um, it's pretty easy to make a case that they kind of set themselves apart uh, in that respect, as opposed to other ideological groups. And this is a group that does have a, arguably, a very, very strong presence and influence in our education system, and not just higher education, but all throughout our education system, all right. the way through from primary school all the way on up. Um, why do you think it is that so many people in, in our education system have a hard time acknowledging this about this ideology and the people adhere to it? Uh, uh, is it because they are so willing to engage in these acts of, uh, in, to engage in this type of behavior? Mm. Um, uh, just, you know, maybe. And, and my second question is uh, about the April 4th, I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry, the uh, Office of Civil Rights. April 4th letter, yeah. Yeah, they, uh, well, um, Rosalind Ali stepped down just recently. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you how you felt that bode about the future of that, when you think it might be, that the, the directive might be repealed, do you think there's any hope for that? Mm -hmm. Or how do you think, what's your interpretation of, of that event? Um, if, whether or not you think it's significant. Sure, there's a lot to unpack there too. Um, the uh, first thing I have to say is please read the book because there's a lot of answers to because these are not easy, easy, quick answers. Um, and I, I have a whole section on due process on college campuses. Oh, you did read the book, okay. So, but everybody else, please read the book. Um, uh, all royalties go to fire, hardest working nonprofit out there. Um, I, I say that other nonprofits, I'm like, you know, they're, they're equally hardworking nonprofits, but you know, 100% is as high as you can get. Um, so I talk about, uh, in, when I talk about different programs that have been uh, started, uh, one of the most nightmarish programs I, I talk about is the one actually that's lesser known than the University of Delaware program, um, is the Michigan State University program, which was started specifically from a, 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 um, a domestic abuse project and then applied to every single student at Michigan State University. And, it, and Orwellian gets tossed around pretty lightly, but this is truly Orwellian. This is a program where you literally have to sit down if you've been caught making an aggressive act, and originally the program was only for men. Originally the program was designed to only go after male aggressiveness and they were gonna browbeat aggressiveness out of men for showing aggression. Um, but they, they talked about how open-minded they were when they presented this uh, back at a conference that I, I was attending in, in, in horror back in 2003. And they were very proud of the fact that they had persecuted a girl under this policy for slamming a door when she got in a fight with her boyfriend. You literally had to sit down in a chair with a non-psychologist, look at the power and control wheel, circle what kind of privilege, whether white or economic, you had, you, you had violated. Um, and, and you had to say what you did wrong the way the administrator wanted you to say what you did wrong. I mean, genuinely, like, right out of, uh, right out of 1984. 
Um, and this existed for years on college campuses uh, at, at Michigan State University, and, and nobody bothered to challenge it. Um, in that same chapter, I talk about uh, the, the, and I, a lot of you probably won't know about this, but the April 4th, 2011 uh, letter from Ruslan Ali, um, uh, Office of the Civil Rights Department of Education, um, saying that uh, since uh, sexual assault is, is, is such a, a serious problem, and of course it is, um, that means that the, the Office of Civil Rights has to um, uh, drop the uh, standard of evidence with which they uh, prosecute harassment claims because that's all the power that OCR actually has. So we follow this rationale. We have this serious offense over here um, and therefore, since the only thing that, that, um, uh, the, that OCR has power over um, is harassment, we need to lower the level of certainty by which we convict people of harassment. Now, I explain this in the book that this is a formula for, for terrible miscarriage of justice because first of all, at most campuses, Harassment is defined in a way that, again, that most students are guilty of committing it. It's, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's defined in this ridiculously broad ideological way that makes any, anybody uh, guilty by its plain language. So we already have something that everyone's already guilty of violating. Then you add to it that, and we need to be less certain people are guilty of it. So preponderance of evidence um, being the standard that they went with, which, um, you know, I, I think that, and it's amazing to me that I think that the Office of Civil Rights Department of Education may be the only institution in the country that looks at college kangaroo courts and says, you know what the problem on college campuses is? There's way too much due process and rationality rating in the, in the uh, judicial process. I don't think anybody else outside of the government thinks that. Um, and you add to that the federal, uh, the, the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, which has been, which has morphed into a way of universities selectively protecting from uh, public view what they do in private. So you've got lack of transparency, you've got codes that make everyone, um, guilt, uh, 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 everyone guilty by their plain language, um, and you, uh, all, and then you decide that you actually have to make people less certain people are guilty in the first place. And FIRE has been, you know, leading this fight. We've been fighting against this. We've, we've helped, you know, put out tons of articles about the April 4th letter. Uh, Ruslan Ali stepped down a couple weeks ago. Was it, was it two weeks ago? You know, and um, so we're hopeful this means something good, that, that someone more uh, will come along who uh, shows greater respect for due process, um, but, we, we, but we remain to see what it actually means. Well, that's going to close our event for today. Uh, lunch will be held on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Up the spiral staircase, look for the yellow wall. Uh, there are bathrooms on the lower level, on the upper level, and next to the elevators. Please join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you.